And we back. I am excited to bring to you this episode with Aaron Woodall, a guy who I met at a bar in downtown Salt Lake City. Uh, we just had a fun night chatting. He made me laugh. Uh, just an overall interesting guy. And it wasn't until a couple weeks after I met him that I even learned that he was a stand-up comedian or had any other creative endeavors in his life. Uh, Aaron Woodall is a middling actor, a self-proclaimed decent comedian, and amazing dad. He had a podcast called Mormon in the Meth Head and was featured on Conan O'Brien's Comics to Watch at the 2018 New York Comedy Festival. Uh, Aaron is just an overall interesting guy with interesting thoughts on the world and has been pursuing his creative endeavors, stand-up comedy, acting, podcasting, for quite a while right now, and has had some success. Uh, in this episode, him and I sit on my back porch and jam casually on stand-up comedy and its similarities with teaching. We talk about storytelling writ large. We talk about his process to building and delivering jokes. We talk about the benefits of scripting and writing out jokes and things in life versus improv. We talk about flow state and stand-up versus extreme sports. We talk about ego and how to build self-love and overall just have some fun while drinking some seltzer waters. Uh, Aaron is going on tour right now and has some upcoming shows. Uh, on October 5th, he's playing in Pocatello, Idaho. He plays in, or I should say he performs in Billings, Montana, October 6th. He'll be in Bozeman, Montana, October 7th, Missoula, Montana, October 8th, Helena, Montana, October 9th, and Salt Lake City, November 7th. Uh, you can click on the episode description for ticket links as well as links to his social media. I would highly encourage you to go check out some of his stuff. It's pretty funny. Uh, anyways, bringing to you Aaron Woodall. I hope y'all enjoy. Yo, it's Lucas, and this is Modern Haunted. So I teach, uh -huh. and each day I have a lesson plan, but I bullet point in between, and I'm trying to tell a story up there mm -hmm. like you're trying to do. And Dude, I once, uh, the only job that I applied for out of college was Teach for America. Yes. It's the only thing I applied for. Mm -hmm. And I spent the whole interview telling them why stand-up prepared me for teaching and uh, so you know, I'm. I totally believe you. You're I, telling a story. Yeah, you're trying to bring people along with you on this journey. Take mm -hmm. them somewhere. You have hecklers that you have to deal with. You have to uh, be in the present moment, but thinking about what is coming up next. When you when one bit goes long, maybe you had like an audience interaction with uh, somebody that stretched that bit out. Then you have to you're doing math in your head about like what am I going to cut. Because I only have a, I only have 45 minutes or whatever, you know, I'm going to have to cut something out and yeah, it's a lot like, there's a lot of the same skills that would cross over. There's a and lot of comics that, that's teaches their day job too. Totally. Teaching is how I got into like, uh, podcasting and like improv stuff is cause 
I'm improving in front of a classroom. I'm mm-hmm. telling a story in front of a classroom. I'm like, whoa, this is powerful and fun, and I like it, and I want to get good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, but so when I lesson plan, I like have the main chunks that I want to touch on, like bullet points. Uh, but I leave it unscripted in between those main chunks. So I, I have it lined out with a flow to it, but I like to improv in between, or I don't like to have it scripted mm-hmm. because I, that allows me to think on my feet in a way where it comes out authentic and genuine. And the kids, as with your audience, can sniff out any sort of inauthenticity. Yeah. Or, anyways, so are you like, are you... Am I writing it down or not? Yeah. <laughs> in... I've been doing stand-up for a long time. I would say like the first four or five years, I was writing everything down. In the early days, I was writing word for word. I was sitting on my laptop, writing down every single word, writing out alternative phrases, writing out so many things written down. Uh, I got to a point where I didn't want to do that anymore. Uh, I had this life-changing encounter with a comedian named Rory Scovel. You heard of him? Look him up. He's one of my faves. He's really cool and a really nice guy. He did a show in Boise, Idaho that I drove up to go see him. And then like the Sunday, because there was like a Sunday night show, but Sunday afternoon, they said all the comics in Boise can just like come and ask Rory questions and he'll talk to you. And so I'd seen his show Saturday night and then I came and picked his brain Sunday and he talked a lot about jazz. He's like, I'm listening to a lot of jazz right now. And that's what's inspiring me. And he, he said, I care uh, less about uh, what I say and more about what I make people feel like. And he said, I don't want people. He's like, I, I'm okay if people can't remember a single joke that I told. If they remember the feeling of being at the show and like being in this moment. And at that point in time, I was thinking, so much of stand-up is uh, pretending to be in the – like you're pretending that you, it's coming off your dome. And it's not. This is a joke that you've told every day for three years. But you have – but it's set up like, so the other day. So the other day, you know. And uh, that, that kind of stuff would drive me nuts as a comic where because I'd be like, it wasn't the other day. Or this didn't happen, you know. And I wanted to uh, be as like – honest on stage as possible and I felt like I was in a very rigid space the way that I memorized my jokes and that uh, it made it hard for me to uh, change things when something would come up when there would be something in the room that would happen that in a normal conversation like if you are open you would change the way you deliver this joke in response to something that happened five minutes ago, like a normal human being would. But uh, when you've got your words, you know, carved into stone in your head, and this is what you say, I found myself, I was disappointing myself a lot because I was like, I felt like I, that could have been better. Why am I? And so I decided I was going to stop writing stuff down. And I did that for many years as well. And I did, I achieved what I wanted. I became, uh, I don't know, much more in the moment. And I would tell jokes differently from night to night. 
and I really, I really liked that. I really, enjoy, it's fun for me. There were times where I would tell a joke really quietly because it's what the the mood that I was in, the mood that we were in. I would tell jokes really loud and angry. I would completely change a punchline to stuff because I wasn't writing stuff down. I feel like it keeps it more lively for you too. Like it really more does. Fun and more uh -huh. new. It uh, there are uh, con. There's like drawbacks to that. Uh, <laughs> I felt like it was really hard to get. Uh, you know the perfect video, the perfect recording, because I, I'm sacrificing to gain that, like what authenticity, yeah, let's call yeah, yeah. it. I am sacrificing some stuff. And, uh, I was, uh, I was mostly okay with that sacrifice, but there are times where like, I would tell a joke in the way that the situation called for it, but that wasn't the funniest version of that joke. There was another version of that joke that would have showcased my writing a lot better, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. I feel that the overlaps that you just said between teaching and stand up, or dare I say it, then life, then stand up are crazy. Like, it's so many overlaps. And I feel that with teaching, everything you just said resonates so hard. Uh, it's telling a story, it's taking mm -hmm. people on a journey, it's being in the moment. One thing, this is a side tangent that we don't have to go into, but <clears throat> I'm curious for the way you live. So, if I look at my lifestyle, now compared to a couple years ago, I noticed myself planning a lot less. Like I, in college, I was like, okay, I'm going on this huge trip and I'm going to do this big adventure. And then the next weekend I'm going to go here and I'm going to, and now I'm like not really planning much. So you're talking about the difference between scripting your jokes mm -hmm. and being free to be nimble and interact with the audience. Yeah. And I feel like my life lately, I'm scripting it less which gives me the ability to be nimble and interact with day to day mm -hmm. uh, more freely, more like, oh, well, the audience wants this or, or the, the energy in the room is this. So I'm going to go this way and it might not be as good of a bit uh -huh. for my camera. But like, that's kind of how I live my I'm a bad planner. And there's, there's things that are fun about that. And then there's drawbacks. Let's just when, cheers that we made it here, <laughs> that we both, I'm a horrible planner, that we both made it here with a set time and we yeah, made it happen. We That's did celebratory. It, we did it. Uh, there's like, there's cool experiences that you miss out on by not planning when there's like, you know, something that you were, that people get their permits for a year in advance so they can go. Like I wanted to go to like the Havasupai Falls, right? And then I, I was just like, I, let's just go. You can't. You have to plan. And then as soon as I learned that, I was like, well, I guess I'll never go because I'm never going to plan. I don't, the idea of planning something that far in advance gives me anxiety. I'm like, who knows what I'll be doing next August? I don't know. Who knows? What if I get the permit for nothing? You know? And so then I just, <laughs> I let which it go. means that I'm finding in my life, I, then miss out on some things like there are some like i'm not always as efficient like there are some weekends where well i guess i'm not doing anything i didn't plan anything and it doesn't pan out quote pan out mm -hmm. uh so i feel like i lose a little bit in that regard but what you gain what i gain from being nimble and able to honor the moment or the day i to me outweighs that do you feel that uh, I don't know. I think I've got like other 
I, th I like this philosophy. Absolutely. I think I have mental problems that are preventing me from living my fullest life. I wish that I, I was like, man, I wish that I could plan more than three days in advance. I think it would be beneficial to my life if I could just get the right medicinal regimen to figure out how to make doctor's appointments and stuff like that. But to get those, that medicine, you have to make a doctor's appointment. And right now that's just, that's a very uh, hard task. It's very difficult. Uh, from 2015 to 20 through 2018, I wasn't really writing anything down. I got to a point where I didn't even write set lists down. I didn't because I was like, I don't like knowing the order of the jokes I'm going to tell. Because I used, I would always, I mean, I would like write out every joke individually, but then I would also have like a keyword title for every joke that I'd write down on a piece of paper, and that's what I'd be studying before I went on stage, and I'd be remembering the order. And I didn't like that anymore, so I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to know the order. Uh, who knows what I'll say? when I get up there. But at that point in time, in like 17, 18, 19, I was, I was performing a lot. And I was uh, traveling a lot. I was getting up on stage in different cities several nights a week. And I was at the peak of my powers. I had like honed it. I was sharp. Everything was great. And I felt, you know, like a god. I can get on any stage. I can make anyone laugh. I can read the room. Great. Post-pandemic, I'm like slow. I basically don't work for like 18 straight months. And then I slowly ease back into it. And I really felt like I was not performing as well as I could be because I wasn't putting any effort into the shows. I feel like I took for granted what I used to do years back where I was like, I can just get up on stage. But I had put a lot of work to get there. And so this summer I did shows a week of shows in Boise and it was like the first time since college that I could remember sitting down at a laptop and writing out word for word each joke. And uh, it felt good. I was very happy with myself. I was glad that I was doing it again because I felt like I was the, I mean, I changed the first time to give the best show possible. And now I've just changed it again for the same exact reason. I was like, I yeah. know I could give a better show if I put more effort into it. There's so, a, typed it out. There's a line in Stoic philosophy that I might butcher a little bit, but it's humans don't often stand into the moment. We fall back into our training. You like when the pressure's on. Oftentimes, actually, if you look at what's happening, we don't step up into the moment. You fall back to your training, to your level of training that you've brought into that. Mm -hmm. You, you know, and so that resonates a little bit with what you're, what you're saying. What are you trying to say with your comedy? Do you have an underlying message that you're trying, that you want your audience to get, to come away with? Or do you have an underlying feeling that you want your audience? I, I don't know how to say this without, um, coming off wrong so I'm going to give a whole big disclaimer because I do think about the audience before I go on stage I'm like I try to change my whole mindset to be about like serving the audience and being like they're here to they're here to laugh they want you to do a good job you need to give them a great night like I do think about the audience but I'm pretty selfish when it comes to 
art. Like I'm making it for me. I'm not making it for anybody. I don't care. I don't have a message to tell anyone. It's just like a thing that I want to say because I'm experiencing it and I need someone else to hear it. And it's like, it's about me. It's like, I just, these are the things I want to talk about. I don't really have a message other than like, listen to me. It's a very, stand up is a very vain art. You know, it's like, but also like everybody sit in a room and be quiet, sit in the dark, shine a light on me. Everyone be quiet. Give me a microphone and everyone listen to what I have to say. But I would push back on you and I would say it's really generous. Mm -hmm. I would say it's incredibly generous. I would say that you being able to push through the discomfort to like go and stand up there and like try to be funny in a room full of people who are expecting you to be funny. That is painful. You ask most people that is painful. And for you to elicit an emotional response, a feeling in your audience of anything of the, Mm. on the positive side of the emotional spectrum, that is generous. People come to comedy shows to entertain me. And as your buddy was, I forget the com, com, Rory Scoville, Rory Scoville was saying, you're trying to elicit a feeling. What, how do your, how how does your audience want to feel? And Mm -hmm. don't we all just want to feel well? Like at the end of the day, when you boil everything down, I'll speak for myself. I just, I don't care what the externals look like. Yeah. I just want to feel well. Yeah. My days are good when I feel good. Mm-hmm. And my days are shitty. Even if I'm in the Bahamas on a white sand beach with a coconut drink. Mm-hmm. In my, like if I feel shitty, it's a shitty day. Uh, I would say what you're doing is generous. Do, or uh, I think that's a, that's a take. <laughs> I think it's a very generous take actually. Uh, because I think something that when people look at stand up, you think like what you said, it's painful. Like it's painful to get up there and do it. Uh, Eyes on. It's, it's not for me. That's what I wouldn't. I am lazy. I wouldn't do anything that was hard for whatever reason. For me, it feels good up there. It's like one of the only times. It's like my best version of myself on stage. I am getting up there for selfish reasons. I am like I do like again, I don't this. I, there is another part of me that is very considerate of the audience. All I'm thinking about, because the audience gets to decide what's funny and blah, there's a lot that's focused on them. But just for this sake of this conversation, uh, I'm getting on stage for me because it makes me feel good. I like the feeling of being up there. For whatever reason, anxiety goes away when I'm like on the spot and I have to perform. I spend so much of my day with just loud thinking in my head and I don't perform at all. I end up doing nothing all day because I'm scared of doing something wrong. And then on stage, there's no time. You can't be scared. You have to perform. And it brings something out of me that I wish I had in other aspects of my life. And I'm just like good at something. And I'm in the moment and I'm great at it. And like, so uh, it's not painful. I, was, it, was there ever a time when it was painful or did it always like elicit that like, it, uh, it always did i mean it was like there are times where it got harder uh, but it was like for the first time i got up there i was like this is this is great i had to keep doing this this is good and uh i think when people i don't know people start out have different uh you know trajectories when you start at comedy but like i i'd say that there's a, a good number of comedians that you can tell at their first open mic They've got it. Like, they're, it's like looking at a prospect at a sport where you're like, 
he couldn't play in the majors right now. Like he's not good, but you can tell that he has talent. Like, wow, he's got a real eye for the ball or whatever. And like, you could see when comics get up on their first open mic, a lot of them, you're like, they have the goods and they have to learn a whole bunch of stuff over the next 10 years to become actually good. But they have it. And I think I got on stage and I was like, I had a good feel for it. And like the, the, when I think of a joke, I don't know, like, I have a, I have a great sense of knowing now. And I think this is now after, you know, 12, 13 years of doing it. Uh, like, uh, I can, I can tell when it's like, what's going to be funny. And I, I do it a lot of times where I test a joke out on friends and they're not really like into it. And I take it into account, but I'm like, I've got a pretty good feeling that that's going to work. Uh, and I do it on stage and I was like, okay, I was right. You know, uh, <laughs> developing your intuition. Uh-huh. So I have a couple threads that are alive for me right now. Number one is developing that intuition, like what goes into that. But before I want to touch on that is it, it sounds like you stand on, I feel you on the mental chatter in your mind. Mm-hmm. Our minds are just talking to us, fear, fear, you're not going to, whatever. I don't know what your mind says to you, but mine says, my mind says some crazy things to me. Yeah. And yeah, it's like, for me, it's like when you're, when I'm playing soccer or downhill mountain biking or freestyle rapping or these things where my mind then, ha, ah, it gives me a little reprieve. Yeah. Uh, flow state. Yeah. You're in flow. Uh, would you? Is that what you feel like is going uh-huh. on up there? Like I think pressure is on. And I think right. stand-up comedy is maybe one of the cheapest ways to uh, uh, achieve that flow state. I don't still am doing the extreme sports because they are. I feel like there's an expensive uh, like gateway. You got to get lots of. But what I do like is getting high and watching documentaries about extreme sports and being like, I really resonate with you. Alex Honnold, is that his name? A free solo <laughs> yeah, guy. Yeah. Like he's talking about like, like, uh, all like in, in a near certain death situation where like an eighth of an inch of his pinky finger and he's dead. And I'm like, I totally get it, dude. I totally, I <laughs> okay. feel you, man. <laughs> but on a, on a but real level, that's true. When they talk about that, like why they do it, I get it. Uh, I totally understand. I remember uh, what movie. It was like I was younger watching movies about like people that climbed Mount Everest and they were always like afraid to so heroic. And I was like, I don't get it. dude. Like they went up there. They died. It seems kind of, you know, selfish, whatever. But now I'm, uh, I'm like, oh, yeah. My, my outlook's totally different. When I'm watching the documentary, and is, is his name Alex? Alex Honnold. Okay. Uh, yeah. And they're like, his girlfriend and mom are like, you might die. I was like, it's none of your business, yeah. okay? If he dies, he dies. He knows. <laughs> Let him go be happy, right? Like, I totally – because I'm like, I've lived I've lived long enough now so unhappy that, like, those those moments, I would do I would do anything to be in that flow state. And – there's another one I watched, like the guy who's 100 foot wave on HBO. Yeah, the, yeah. That guy who's trying to big wave surf. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Like this similar thing that they talk about. And I've never surfed. I have been in the ocean a couple of times. And I got to tell you, I love, I love getting taken under uh, by a violent wave and being thrown around and not knowing when I'm coming back up. Your brain feels good. I've never felt so good that when I was like almost drowning, you know? You mean, uh, not, you mean metaphorically on stage? No, I mean like in literally life? in that ocean. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah, that feels very, like it makes your, uh, I don't know, it makes your brain, I, it shuts everything up. All your, all, and you know that there's nothing you can do but surrender. And you're just like, uh, I'm fine with whatever happens, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
We have I, our basics. I don't think stand-up is exactly like that. But I think that the chasing that feeling is what uh, a lot of comics are doing if they, if they, even if they don't realize it. For sure. We, and do, we joke about how it's a drug, how it's addictive, people. Uh, but I don't know. We compare more to drugs than we ever compare it to like extreme sports. But I think there it might be a better comparison, uh, actually, than than you know like heroin or something. But like you get on stage and you get addicted to that feeling, and I guess for some people really is like addicted to the attention. You get a lot of attention on you, yeah, and uh, that does feel good. For me though, that's uh, I don't think. That's actually like the downfall. Like when you get off stage, you crash a lot like drugs, you know, you feel good for a while and then you come down. I think the crash is mostly for me about how the attention goes away. When you've had like 350 people listening, hanging on your every word and telling and laughing and making you feel really good about yourself and all your validation is coming externally. And then you have to go sit in your car for 45 minutes alone while you drive home with nothing but your thoughts. It's hard to then validate yourself internally because you were just getting it from all these people and now that source is gone and that's what I think the crash is. So like the good high for me is more about like how my brain just feels free and how I'm like operating at my top capacity. Mm -hmm. I feel like uh, I'm doing something I'm good at and I'm not overthinking it. And I'm just in the moment and there, there is peace and there's happiness in that. Totally. Looking back on your career, do you see periods of your career where you did get slipped into or sucked into the egotistical bolstering of like... Oh, I would say almost all of my career (laughs) until until just this last stage. I feel like it was was the pandemic that opened my eyes. You ever take like a sobriety break from something where you like just you don't do it for a while and then when you do it again you like notice the effects more profoundly than you ever did before. Yes. Cause you were used to the effects of weed, beer, whatever. And, but when you like take a break for six months and then you have your first beer, some you like notice the changes that it has in your body. Huge. So taking 18 months off of stand up and then coming back to it, I was like shocked by how much it felt exactly like a drug felt exactly like a drug where there was this incredible buildup, excuse me, there and like there was an incredible rush and incredible high and then an incredible crash. And I started paying attention to that, thinking about it more. I always, comics, I always talk to people about that like post-show feeling where you just stare into the abyss in your hotel room alone. You just feel terrible after, for a long time I played around with this idea where I was like, I really wish that I could make the audience feel the way I feel when I step off stage. Like I wish I could ruin their night (laughs) and like, I wish I could like pull the rug out from under them and they could feel shitty. So, cause they would know how I felt. Bo Burnham does that in, I believe it's make happy. One of the best specials I'd ever seen. Pretty sure it's make happy. Uh, he like ends the special and then walks off stage and the camera follows him and he goes and plays this sad little song on his piano about like, uh, mom, are you happy? Uh, am I like, why am I not happy? Anyway, brilliant. This is, I would talk to comics about that feeling, but it wasn't until post pandemic that I felt like I unlocked like the reason why. And my theory was like the attention was that I was like, are you really feeding the ego? Mm-hmm. And like, uh, 
what's you know you know when you give your brain uh like dopamine and then it just yeah. wants more yeah it's like feeding your ego it's insatiable yes it just wants more so when you cut off the food source at the end of the night and go home you're miserable you miss it feels terrible Yes. This is why uh, so many comedians uh, die young. Uh, right. And I think like, I, you know, because you look for another high. Yeah. You look for something else because you feel like shit. It, because your ego, in my theory, my what I think now is that like my ego was getting fed and then I cut it off. And so what I try to do now I, Tom Brady, uh, this is like, this wisdom from all kinds of sources here. Here we go. He said that the key was like you can't feel – if you don't want to feel different after a loss, you can't feel different after a win. That's not at all what his quote was. I don't remember what he actually said. This is me regurgitating it years later. But he was talking about staying even keeled. And he was like, you can't let uh, fans or like the win-loss outcome dictate how you feel. And it's one thing to not let a loss dictate how you feel. Like don't let a bad game get to you. But you also can't let good games get to you. Uh, or the bad games will. and It that... comes down to where are you centering your seat of self? Mm-hmm. Are you putting your self-worth and self-confidence in how other people respond to you? Or are you putting it into things you can control, like how you carry yourself and your process of how you came and prepared for this show and Tom, yeah, yeah process exactly. over outcome? I so I worked it. on like trying to suppress the um, the high before a show. Like I get like so much adrenaline, There's so much adrenaline the day of a show. And I used to really live for that. And now I'm trying to, uh, stop that. I'm trying to stay like when I feel myself, uh, I try not to give into the adrenaline and I try to just like breathe and just go somewhere else and think about something else and come into the show very even keeled. And have you noticed that's helped with some of the ups and downs? It definitely, it definitely helps. It does. And then it makes you have to love something else about stand-up, though, because if that's Which what you is, loved, if you loved that that rush, and that's what you're now you're you denying now it. you're denying yourself that. Uh, you, I think, what you just said is great. You focus on like uh, being proud of yourself and the work that you did leading up to it, and like just being, uh, you know, it has to come internally. Mm-hmm. It can't. You can't get the rush from other people. Yeah. One of my first shows back was in Colorado Springs. And I had a great show and nobody like uh, one. I do. I do a great show. The early show. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was an early and late show. I do the early show. It's great. And I sell a bunch of t-shirts after and everybody shakes my hand and wants to get a shirt and stuff. Feel so good about Sorry myself. Baby. Feel so good about myself. The second show I feel even better about. I feel like on stage, I'm doing things better than I did in the first show. Afterwards, no one buys a t-shirt. Everybody just leaves. And I let it, it, it hurt me so bad. Well, like I was now in such a bad mood. But when I looked back on it, I was like, Aaron, you were prouder of the second show than you were the first show. You're letting these people's reaction dictate how you feel about it. And I'm like, well, how do I not let them dictate? Like, in a in an art form that is 
very much about other people's opinions, like if they laugh or not, you know, it's hard not to let them dictate how you feel. But I try, I try. And I'm, I have to be like, you know, I personally was proud of the way I delivered that joke in the second set. It was better than the uh, way I delivered it in the first. I shouldn't feel sad. I should feel happy. It's two, a two thing, two yeah. ideas that I think you just eloquently described were process over outcome. Are you focused on your process mm. or the outcome? And the second is, uh, I've been into stoic philosophy lately and they just, they have this term, maybe you know it called the stoic dichotomy of control, which blah, 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 big jargon for, uh, can you control the thing? Is it in your control or is it not in your control? Are you control of, are you in control of how your audience responds to you? No, you're in control of how you deliver your jokes and, mm -hmm. and it's focusing on that, which you can control and letting go of that, which you can't control. Who knows? Maybe, Someone took a dump in the back of the, in the back of the comedy room and people were grossed out and had to leave the show quick. And that's why you like, <laughs> there's like yeah, crazy, maybe, maybe. crazy things. I'm not saying that's the case, uh -huh. but there's things that are out of your control that mm -hmm. maybe that went into why they didn't buy your t-shirts, even though you crushed your set. It's yeah. yeah. Anyway, stoic dichotomy of control. It's uh -huh. cool. So do you notice we're talking about ego right now? Yeah. You have hit some, on some level, some stardom. I don't know how much, I, I don't know. But I'd imagine, as we're talking about, that plays into your sense of, sense of self and how you think about yourself. And, like, ideally it wouldn't, mm -hmm. but I'm sure it trickles in. Uh, and it also, on the flip side, when people interact with you, I'm sure you interact with people who are like, Aaron, oh my God, where you sense this, like you're the role of the stand-up uh -huh. comedian and there are these like fan, fan people who are like, oh, where you're playing roles and not just yeah. humans looking eye to eye. Uh, do you notice that? Do you feel that? Do you play into it ever? Like looking back, I know you don't intentionally, uh. but like looking back, have you noticed yourself? playing into it or does it get annoying when people come up to you you're like yo i'm just a human do you guys see this i'm just a human i'm not some like okay stand-up comedy is a thing i do mm -hmm. uh anyways take that where you will but okay so in 2018 and 19 i had this podcast that was called mormon and the method and it blew up a little bit not like huge but like this was like the best my career ever was at that, that point in time it was what that was when i was performing the most or i had like the most potential i got i got uh, a spot at, on the like conan's comics to watch at the new york comedy festival i was really feeling my shit like i'm like oh i'm going somewhere right and we also because of the podcast i had fans for the first time a lot of people all over the country even other parts of the world were suddenly and again, this is a small time success, not nothing huge, just bigger than anything I'd ever experienced. I suddenly had fans in other places when I used to have, you know, 15 fans. So it's big for me. And uh, I mostly hated it. It was mostly a very painful, awful experience. Um, Why? I don't. Well, I think a lot of it is that I just don't. I did. I really didn't love myself. It's not like I totally love myself now, but I do more than I did then. Uh, and when people said nice things to me, it felt bad. I didn't like it. And I felt like I would dismiss them as like they were, uh, crazy. 
they're fanatics. They're fans. They're of course. They're, I was like, they're lesser people. <laughs> I was like, they're dumb. They don't know. I think awful things about these fans who loves me. I'd be like, well, you love me because you're so dumb. <laughs> you're so dumb that you find me uh, yeah. smart. So that's you know, great. The Do dumb, you, the dumb people love me. How good for me, you on know. On some level, was there a kernel of truth there, or no? No, I. Well, I think. Uh, I, like, in what part? What do you mean? The, they're dumb? No, well, I don't no, think no, they're just dumb. just the type of people who your jokes resonate with. Uh, uh, like if you could tie it to an IQ level. No, okay, no, no, okay, no, no, okay. no, no, no. I didn't no, know no. if there was – okay. But the, the flip side is like I also for the first time had people who didn't like me. You know, people would leave bad reviews of the podcast. They would say mean things about me on the Facebook page. Classic. Tell me why I gave those people so much more headspace than – all the people that were complimenting me. A lot of people complimented me. My ego would reject <coughs> it. A lot of people, some people say bad things about me and my ego would be like focused on it, you know? And so it was most, it was a, it was a great learning experience for me, but it was a painful learning experience. Uh, having like people, uh, that didn't know me, hate me bothered me so much, but then having people love me also bothered me. And I would sit and think about that a lot. And I would be like, Aaron, look at all these nice reviews that say the nicest things. Why don't you care about them at all? Why do you, are you focused on these two reviews? And you're like, why are you replying to people online? You know, I'm like, I just can't have anyone, anyone hate me. But then when people loved me, I also would be like, I don't like this either. Actually, I actually don't like any of this. Uh, and so when I quit the, when we ended the podcast, I felt like immense relief. I was like really, uh, grateful. I feel like it's hard to learn who you are and how to love yourself just in general, but to do it while a bunch of people like are looking on is, is a little bit harder. And it was a relief to like get, uh, to feel, to feel less perceived. I hate it. Yeah. I think like, it's not like, uh, I'm alone, a Howard Hughes in a room or whatever, but like, I felt like I had more breathing room just simply because there weren't all these, not eyeballs on me, but no one was listening to my voice anymore. No one was like thinking thoughts about me in other States that like freaked me out. Like, I don't, we, we are kind of touching on this on the, uh, on the walk here about like, you know, maybe we need to go back to pre-internet because we shouldn't have so much information. I, what I usually say is like, uh, no one was meant to know this many people. Like, I don't think I like the idea of people in another country thinking about me. I don't, uh, it freaks me out. I want to know, I want to know 15 people and yeah. that's it. And I think that would be challenging enough to live as a human, only knowing that handful of people and some relatives, but like, just I, I'm clearly a very anxious person who thinks a lot, but like just to have, you know, notification and like social media is a as another sick part of it. When you're building something, every every artist has to make their art, but also has to make content and has to. There's, if you want to make it as an artist, there's no way not to be on social media. So I'm like running the Facebook page for the podcast. I'm running the Reddit, the subreddit, the, I've got a Twitter for it and I'm getting, I'm sucked into this very unhealthy thing every day mm-hmm. because it's my business. Mm-hmm. I have to put out content. I have to read. I have to moderate. I have to uh, sell tickets to these people. I have to, you know, cultivate the fandom. I have to get them to come out to shows. So I'm doing lots and lots of stuff and I felt like it was very, uh, a mentally taxing for someone 
who's not like, I think if you're like a fully formed uh, person and you like got a great sense of self, then you're golden. You can do it. But for me, it was rough. And when we quit the podcast, uh, it was a huge relief to me in a lot of ways where I was like, wow, yeah. I'm really glad I don't have to, I like, got off a lot of social media I'm still mm. on them but like i don't have to be on it as much as i used to and it's feels healthier uh, feels well, good what you just said there is one of the main thesis points of modern hominid of this podcast it's cool to hear you say that uh for me i get hyped up hearing that <laughs> that's cool also a funny side note is i'm like i have this podcast i'm refusing to get on social media because <laughs> like it fucks with me it does it fucks with me and it's poisonous. It's toxic. Uh -huh. And so I'm like, try. I, I I care about this thing, this art that I'm creating, and mm -hmm. I want people to listen to it. But I'm also like, I refuse to get on social media. And we don't have to go there. I think you're probably right. If I wanted to actually blast it off, it would social media would be necessary. But I just oh, I can't even go there. And I'm trying to do this because it's fun. Because sitting here with you mm -hmm. is fun. This is why yeah. I'm doing it. Making the people. art is fun. Uh, making content is not as fun. I'm in awe of the artists who are good at both, who make good art and are making good content. I think that's like really impressive mm -hmm. because, uh, I find, I find it hard to do both. Yeah. I think like if you have money or maybe just a really great friend, <laughs> yeah, you can hire content. someone who's like in charge of your media, in charge of your content. Someone that's going to promote you and do stuff yes and i feel like most big name comics once they get once they've reached that point they do have mm -hmm. people working for them mm -hmm. you know like bert kreischer and tom segura have a crew of people producing their podcasts yeah filming it editing it putting the clips on tiktok putting the clips on youtube they're not doing any of that stuff yeah and that's got to be awesome yeah uh, at the level when you're like building something you're just starting out it's you doing all of those things. Yes. And, uh, and man, if you hate like it. watching yourself or listening to yourself, you're critical of yourself. <laughs> it's painful to like try to put clips online. You're just like, Ugh, you know, and it's, <laughs> and it's uh, hard yeah. to like get notifications on your phone at night that somebody said something mean about you. And you're like, now I got to think about this until I fall asleep. You know, yeah. it sucks. Um. I am curious if you feel, we were talking about ego. I am curious if you feel when you interact with people, do you feel their expectations put on Aaron Woodall, the comedian to be funny? Do you feel that in your daily life, people like almost are like, well, you're a stand-up comedian. So no, you should I don't. Be funny. Or do and you I... feel people's expectations for you to play the role of Aaron Woodall? Hmm. I, I felt something like that when I would meet fans of the podcast, when we'd be in other cities and we'd meet them and there would be not, not never to be funny. Like I'm also not funny in person. I'm jealous of the comics who are funny in conversation. I, I disagree with that. When I met you at Alibi, I was like, this dude is a vibe. <laughs> we were I, drunk. <laughs> I also didn't think that you were anxious. And I was like, that's funny. And this was, I didn't learn you were a stand-up comedian until much later. Uh, Anyways, just that night I was drunk and flirtatious. I was on my game. I was trying to make a good impression. And, uh, uh, I, I made a very good impression on Lucas. 
we uh, met at a random bar dancing yeah. down in Salt Lake City. Hey, here's to I, true friendship without social friendship. media or, yeah. or apps. <laughs> we we met a met a friend. I was trying, I was trying to impress this girl who I think was taken with your friend. <laughs> And instead, me and my roommate Whitney became great friends with you. You were like, you guys yeah. are really cool. And we were like, yes. you're cool. And we just chatted all night. Oh, I love it. Uh, and then, I, then you found out as a comedian and you bought tickets to my show, but got COVID, gave your tickets to somebody else. And the guy who just biked by here and made the fart noise, the real <laughs> the real mature friend of mine who's my roommate, that is who went to your show right Oh, there. hi. Hello. Yeah. Oh, there he lives here. Uh, right. uh, but so you don't feel people's. I I wish that was funnier. Com- I'm jealous of the comics who are really funny. I have a friend Jacob who doesn't even do stand up anymore. I hate him so much because he's just effortlessly funny. He's so smart. He thinks up of like puns and things to say just uh, in seconds, and I just sit around him feeling dumb all the time. Anyway. People, I don't ever really feel an expectation of people expecting me to be funny. I don't ever feel that, and I'm fine with that. I'm I'm happy with that. And I even when I would meet podcast fans, when I meet podcast fans, I feel, dude. Here's the thing: mentally, mentally, when you like someone and you already think they're funny, everything they say is funny. Uh, When you go, when you pay, uh, this is the thing: it's harder to get laughs when you're not famous. When once you're like famous, uh, you, in my opinion, most comedian specials like their first one is their best one, and there's several reasons for this. So we don't have to get into all of them, but one of the things that I want to focus on is that as they get further in their career, people are laughing more because they're like, "I love John Mulaney, and I believe he is funny, and I will laugh at whatever he says." And it, like in my like professional opinion, that's what he just said wasn't nearly as funny as the joke that he told, you know, eight years ago, but it's getting bigger laughs because people are like fans. They're happy to see you. They're excited. Yeah. So I felt like people believed I was funny and they would laugh at stuff. I would say like that. I wasn't even trying, you know, I didn't feel like there were no one was sitting around disappointed that I wasn't more funny. Instead, they're all convinced themselves that I'm very funny, even when I wasn't trying to be. Mm-hmm. But the expectation, the not exa- I don't know. I felt weird about how they thought they knew me because I would talk about my life so much on the podcast, and it feels like they're talking to a friend, and people would forget that like I've never met you in my life, and that they would take liberties with you because they would feel close to you when you're like I feel nothing for you, I have no intimacy with you, and it's weird that you would say what you just said to me, you know, because you're a stranger. Right we met 10 seconds ago. Uh, that's the only, it, I didn't ever feel like a burden of expectation to be funny. I did feel uncomfortable when people may, had an expectation that we were friends, yeah. you know, uh-huh. uh, like, I'm like, I'm glad that you <laughs> like my material. I'm glad that you've connected with it. But, but you know, it truthfully, it creates a weird interaction socially because I'm like, I I have I don't know nothing about you. Yeah, and you know all of my secrets. It's probably hard to authentically connect with them. Yeah, it is. Anyone who pigeonholes you into that role, uh huh. We get stuck in these roles, and then it's hard to get out of those roles. Yeah, there's a the few people that uh, like that from that era that I'm like still friends with. Yeah. There were like a few more that I like felt more friends with at that time, but we've like not talked in yeah, a while. Yeah. But there's like a couple that I'm like still consider mm-hmm. friend. 
and there's a few people who uh, were smart enough to not tell me that they knew about the podcast until much later. Yeah, like we, yeah, yeah. we got to know each other and then they're like, Hey, so just so you know, uh-huh. I did used to listen to your podcast and I'd be like, Oh, thank you for keeping that to yourself. Honestly, that's the, if you, when people tell me that at, out of the gate, then I don't know how to act with them. I feel weird Yeah, because I, in case this sounds like, I don't know, weird to people, the podcast, I, t- I said intimate shit. Yeah. Like I, I was, I, t- I mean, I cried on the podcast. We talked about like sexual assault and we talked about like divorce uh-huh. and, and, uh, leaving religion. I thought I got like way bore my soul, which was cool. And people like loved it because it was so honest and raw and real. And that's what I wanted. But again, to go back to what I said about being selfish. Uh-huh. People still like I'll, every now and then we'll get a message, an email or something where somebody just found the podcast and they thank us and they're like, Hey, thank you. This really helped me. And I, I, and I'm like happy about that. I really am. But I always felt weird about people thanking me because I did it for me. I just did. I wasn't like, I knew people would connect. I knew it like people were going to resonate with it. And I was always happy about that. But like I did it because I had to say it. Yeah. I wasn't I had I had to put it on a microphone and make someone else listen to it or I was gonna go crazy. Mm-hmm. I was gonna kill myself if I didn't tell everybody every sad thought that I was having. Yeah. And uh yeah. then people would be like, Hey, thank you for doing it and I'm like, No, really, thank thank you for listening to it. Like I needed somebody to hear me for, say that. Uh for bearing witness to yeah. your experience. Uh-huh. So I resonate with that. I have shared on this podcast also some incredibly intimate, uh, vulnerable things of my life, uh, which I don't have, whatever, doesn't matter. Uh, I've shared that and it is a question mark that I have like, Oh, cause part of me is like, yeah, I do think people want or need or should like, we should all be more vulnerable. Like, why do we have to hide these sides, these darker sides and these sides that we don't talk about? And I'm trying to just, okay, whatever, like show some vulnerability and let it out. Um, but I do have question marks about it as well. Like, ah, do like, dang, should I be like guarding a little bit? Uh, which brings me into a question for you, which we can, yeah, do it. Do do you, do you censor yourself when you're on stage or with your jokes? Like Dave Chappelle is talking about trans activism and with cancel culture. Oh, that's a whole different topic. We can get into that in a second. Two, exactly. Two threads there. I wanted to get that out there. So first, I changed my mind a lot on vulnerability. Whereas when I started that podcast, I considered myself like strong and brave for being so vulnerable. Like, and I was like, everyone should be more vulnerable, right? And I do think that to an extent that's true. I do, I am still happy if I set a good example for someone to be more vulnerable, good. I don't think broadcasting your deepest secrets to uh, the whole world and like of anonymous people is vulnerability. I I don't think now looking back on it, I don't think it was uh, as brave and strong as I thought. I actually don't even think it was very healthy. I think it was someone who was uh, 
deeply hurt and sad uh, doing something to like try to keep my head above water. But like it wasn't that's not true intimacy. It's not true vulnerability. I sat in a room by myself and I just like blurted every thought in my head and then blasted it on airwaves across the, the, the world. And that's like, what, what's a word? Trauma dumping? You know, people like you meet someone and they immediately tell you way too much and you, you don't ever think of that person as healthy. You're never like, wow, what a great example of vulnerability. You're like, why would anyone tell me that the first time they met me? That's how I feel about what I was doing. I do think vulnerability is good. I think we, but I think that it's got to be earned. Like you have to be vulnerable with the right people and you have to like gain trust and it has to be like a process and it, and it should be like a little scary and that's how you know that it's real and that's how you know that it matters. When you share something with someone, uh, that like it shouldn't just be like, I'm going to tell everybody this thing because I don't think that you personally gain anything from that and I don't think the other person does either. But like when... Uh, you're measured with your emotions and you are like not suppressing them, but you're, you're feeling them. And I think that like, I just couldn't at that point, I couldn't feel my emotions without vocalizing them. I couldn't sit with them in myself. I had to tell them to other people because I needed them to help me bear the load. And now I try to, uh, I'm much better at like feeling things myself and I try to, you know, bear it myself and then when appropriate, share it with other people rather than just, you know, dumping it on everybody. I, whew, snaps to that. <laughs> well said. I feel that. Huh. Uh, it's a line I'm trying to walk right now. That line of vulnerability, a little bit, not too much, when to say it, what to say, how to frame it when I dump it. Uh, and it's, yeah, I'm learning. And it's, uh, I mean, that's, being a human, yeah, uh, it's it's hard. Uh -huh. uh, you have to like, you know, as an adult, unlearn things that you learned, and that can take a long time. And then Oof. you just keep growing and and trying. And uh, yeah, like I uh, am really, I'm a I'm a dad. I've got a son, and I'm really proud of the way that I parent. I'm proud of the dad that I am, and I'm like much. We talk, I talk much more about emotions and feelings with him than my dad ever talked to me. And I'm like very proud of that. I'm very, uh, like open with him and I can be vulnerable with him. We can talk to each other about our feelings and stuff mm -hmm. and talk about, you know, that's no small feat. Yeah. And I also <laughs> think that there's a, there's a line there as a parent too, where you're like not supposed to like put the burden of your feelings on your kids but you i do think you should share enough of your feelings that they learn how to share and reciprocate feelings you know but uh we could talk about like how the way movies make us feel i like talking to them about like why this part of spider-verse makes me cry and you know we could and then i like hearing you know the stuff that he is sad about whatever that's that's the only, like, I, I talk about that because the only relationship right now I have in my life that I could use as an example. But, like, I feel true intimacy there, true vulnerability, uh, a, a sharing of emotions that feels, you know, equal and appropriate and stuff. The When I was just 
dumping all of my feelings onto podcast listeners I've never met. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the same thing I feel mm-hmm. as being because uh, I wasn't really vulnerable. It didn't really take anything yeah. to tell them that. And when I met people that had heard me say that, I was terrified of them. Uh-huh. Like I, I was, I hated that they knew these things about me. Yeah. So that wasn't true vulnerability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't really as like being as healthy as they all perceived me to be. Like he's so brave for saying these things, yep. but I, I was only brave because I wasn't looking any of you in the face. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. it takes just this whole thing. The, the word that comes to mind is discernment. Yeah. Uh, which to kind of pivot back to that last question I asked, I, I am curious, what discernment do you use as far as we're in the midst where there's all these hot button topics of trans rights, of abortion, of LGBTQ plus, mm-hmm. of racial issues, of, of everything. We're just, our climate in general is hot, both literally and metaphorically hot. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe amplified by social media, that can be a side tangent, mm-hmm. but... Uh, things are hot right now and our language for better or worse is being policed via, via cancel culture, via, uh, the wokesters. I don't know. I got so, a lot of strong feelings about this. Would you, yeah. This could be like a whole other I know, podcast. Dude, and I want to talk to you about. about being a dad. Uh, I want to talk about modern got, father, fatherhood. You, you got to bring me back on, dude. Okay, I would, straight I would, up. I'd do a whole episode <laughs> about being a dad for sure. And I could do a whole episode about this. And and I also want to talk to you about self-love. Let's start to ease out here. What, whatever of those three feel most alive. I don't know. Um, the thing, <laughs> I feel like I sh- what I should pick is the self-love. It would fit the theme of this whole thing okay but like i'm passionate about this other thing and i yeah, can't help too. but shut up i okay, can't, I can't, I can't um there is like nothing wrong with the state of comedy right now i don't think that there's anything that no one's being policed more than they've ever been policed i think maybe twitter's a little different now, like, it's a different thing where you can get uh, a lot of people just biting on a headline and screaming at you. But, like, uh, do you care? Honestly, Dave Chappelle, millionaire Dave Chappelle, do you care? Like, I don't, I don't, you know, whatever. Are, you I, asking? are there that many hot button topics? Are there, is it hotter than the 60s? Is it hotter than the 90s? Is it like, there's always going, there's always things that we are upset about. I do think that, like, we're in a media age where, uh, Things because of the way media is shared and consumed, uh, that like uh, we are different than the '90s and the '60s and stuff. But to, like, there was hot button stuff that people didn't want to talk about back then. I was just being reminded of like um, when the uh, the University of Wyoming football players wanted to boycott the BYU game in the '70s, and I was watching this little like ESPN documentary on it, and which I'd seen before, but it was on again. And the, the, they're talking to like the, like the seven or eight black players on the Wyoming team that all got kicked off the team because they didn't, they wanted to boycott. And the thing was like all these black guys are talking of what the message they got from the school and the town was like, why you got to make everything about race? Like why, like, and this is like in the midst of the civil rights movement and you, and I just, I could, I felt so close to those people 
who are like, oh my gosh, I just want to enjoy my football without having to hear about re How similar does that sound to stuff that you hear today? When they're like, hey, can't we just go to a game anymore without it being political? Why is Colin Kaepernick got a kneel? Like what? It's the same. It's, I feel like we are, have the same hot button topics that comedians have always had. They're hot button topics. And no, there is no topic that you can't make a joke about. Your joke does have to be good. And, uh, like, it is okay if people uh, are mad at your joke. They ultimately get to decide if your joke uh, was good or not. And that's how it's always been. And it feels very weird that these comedians are, are crying about it now. And I'm like, that's just like, that's just rule of comedy. At the, there was a time when my dad was like way more progressive than his dad. Like, and he viewed, my dad was like a radical, a revolutionary who thought like, uh, the black kids at his school, uh, deserved, you know, drink out of the same water fountain, right? But now he's the old guy in the room who doesn't understand what trans people are. And I'm like looking at my son and thinking about like, I'm, there's going to be a day where he's going to think that I am like the most backwards bigoted person because I don't believe that like robots have souls or something. I don't know. Okay. I don't know what the issue is going to be, so but I've there's got... going to be an issue that uh -huh. you and me are going to be on the wrong side mm -hmm. of because we're old mm -hmm. and that's just the way life goes. Yeah, totally. I just wish old is... people would shut up. That's all. <laughs> Especially Dave Chappelle should know better. He's, he's Dave Chappelle. He should know better. And he's just being old and he's being cranky and he just, it's weird that he won't shut up about it. That right. he wants to keep crying about being canceled, that people can't take a joke. We can take jokes. Your jokes aren't nice and they aren't good. Mm. And like, there's, there's another Dave Chappelle joke from like, I think killing them softly. It's, 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 uh, he talks about R. Kelly victims, like the 15 year old girls that uh, he that R. Kelly was peeing on, you know? And he is making a joke about these victims. Like, wow, what a tough target to make. But he, he the joke is, how old is 15 really? And he's like, aren't these girls old enough to know if they want to get peed on? And like, the crowd is tense. The crowd is uncomfortable. Everyone's like, ha ha, like whatever. And then he takes it to, a story about uh, 15 year old kids getting tried as adults in court. Like they're being sentenced to life in prison at, at 15. And then he says again, the same punchline, how old is 15 really? And it's a brilliant joke that makes everybody think that you go like, he has a point to this joke and there's a point of view and there's a reason why he made them uncomfortable and why he broke the tension. And it's such a beautifully crafted joke. What a tightrope he walks on that joke to allow himself to like, to keep the audience on board with him enough so that he can get to his point. And his point is about like, maybe we shouldn't try. If we're going to, uh, say that like teenagers can't consent to this, then maybe we shouldn't be trying teenagers as adults. And it's like a, a joke with a perspective. What's his fucking perspective in the alphabet letters joke when he's just like, mm -hmm. these alphabet people, his joke is just that trans people are holding up gay rights. And it's like, why are you at, it's just a yeah. bad, joke it's not funny it's not nice the point i don't understand what the point of it is mm -hmm. uh, he and it's like he's not uh -huh. been canceled he's not been canceled at all i think that in a lot of ways he's playing into it 
because mm. he knows it gets clicks, it gets views. Mm. But like, I was on board with all. There's even some of the Netflix specials he did. I loved. Yeah, I love. I find him fascinating, super interesting, very smart. I love hearing uh, him talk. Yeah, I'll just listen to him talk. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a joke in the same special where he does the alphabet joke where he talked about Anthony Bourdain's suicide, and it's hysterical. And it's a brilliant joke that's so like, and he's talking about the, he's making fun of the suicide of someone people love, like universally beloved Anthony Bourdain. And his joke makes a point about suicide so eloquently that like, I, I, I loved it so much. He never, he never says it out loud, but you understand that the point of the joke is that there is no reason behind suicide. It's an illogical thing that someone does in pain. Like that there's like, that's the, and, and it's funny. And that's a, that's a very, I don't know, nuanced. cancelable. Yeah, yeah. It's nuanced. And, and no one was mad at him for that joke. No one. So like to say there's no nuance anymore. There, there is, I mm-hmm. think, I do think, you know, in the days of like headlines and clickbait, we have lost a lot of nuance. Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. But like no one canceled you for that joke because it was a good joke. And it was like an uplifting joke that made us feel things about humanity that made us feel closer to each other. And we loved it. And that we hated the alphabet joke because it it fucking sucked. So maybe just take some criticism, you old bastard. It's a bad (laughs) joke. Oh, yeah, totally. Oh, as you can tell. No, dude, I feel it. This is like the number one thing that gets brought up as when you tell someone you're a comedian. People always think that they can like, uh, re- they're like, so yeah, is it really tough being like the dentist? It's always like, you know, like, you know, wealthy conservative white people who are always, like, always think that they're going to like make some inroads with you when they're like, so it's, yeah, pretty tough to be. I bet it's pretty tough for your job right now because, you know, it's so hard. You can't joke about anything these days. <laughs> and, uh, I get, I get, so I had this conversation all the time. So I'm yeah. very passionate about it. We, in the internet culture, I feel like we've, the last 100 years, whatever, we've all just gra- like gradually kept doing the easiest thing, the easiest thing, the easiest thing, and it got hyper-accelerated once the internet came about. The soft apocalypse. It's hard to change people. It's very easy to shame them. And like, this isn't a new thing. This has happened uh, all throughout history. This was happening in like the Red Scare in the 50s. It was happening. There were, you know, the term witch hunt came from witch hunts, right? It's not a new human tendency, but I think with the internet, it got hyper accelerated. And when there is no restorative justice, when there is no path to redemption, the only thing that you can, that can save you, that you can hope for, is for someone else to fuck up that you can then join the mob again and be one of the finger pointers rather than having the fingers point at you. And so then we just, that's why, and we're hungry for the drama and we have no appetite for compassion or understanding. We uh, don't seek to understand. We seek to be angry. We rather, we want to have, because it's like, it's become our entertainment the way that like this anger has become monetized and commercialized through television, not just the internet, but like television, cable TV, the way the news programs changed and to entertainment television, you know, and uh, like, let's blame capitalism before we blame (laughs) teenagers on the internet. Right. But like, uh, they, it is, 
that the that cancel culture exists, right? Uh, the way that we just want to point fingers at everyone and we want to say you're bad because you did this bad thing. But the truth is, every single one of us has done something bad. Every single one of us, how like every time someone gets hired to SNL, they're deleting all their tweets because they know something. It's like there's something out there that's going. That everybody has done something that they are ashamed of, that they're embarrassed about, and like we have to learn to love ourselves and love other people and allow them change, right? All these things, uh, the Me Too movement, uh, men being aggressive in the workplace, sexually assaulting women, racism, all these things <clears throat> that you could maybe call bad that uh -huh. we see in our life, people pointing fingers and cancel culture, mm -hmm. as you mentioned earlier, stems from i i believe a place of a lack of self-love and we talked about this mm -hmm. i mean someone who fully loves themselves to their core is welling with love uh they love that love emanates and it emanates in yeah. ways that they interact with the world with people and we had talked about your journey to developing self-love cultivating self-love within yourself i I am at that same point, and I think that is that's to the core right there. Uh, all we need is love. Just like there's classics, and you take psychedelics, and you feel that, and you like uh, maybe just to like segue us out. Everyone should take psychedelics. <laughs> yeah. by the way. That's a really good. That's a really good thing. Uh, how, don't, seg don't segue out just yet. Oh, love it. Okay, because I'm good to keep. Uh, <laughs> I, but I I'm, I'm cueing. I'm you queuing you up on self-love, your okay. journey to cultivating self-love, uh, how you've even gone about mm -hmm. that. Like, wh what do we do? Because it's easy to say, oh, you just got to love yourself more. But what does that mean? Does that mean looking yourself in the mirror and saying, Lucas, I love you. Lucas, I love you. Or like, how do we go about I, this I don't know journey? if I've got a great answer <laughs> for it. For me, it's time and drugs. Drugs have really helped of me, uh, when you identify, say drugs, what are you, what are you talking here? Uh, weeds, my weeds, the thing weeds it for me. It helped me in a million ways, but, uh, also acid other people more into mushrooms. I was never a mushroom guy, but like acids really had me give me a few epiphanies where you just like, or and Molly, uh, MDMA, like just things where I, uh, could suddenly feel, a lot more compassion for myself, love myself. But like also, weed helped me identify the voices in my head that weren't me. I was actually reading an article about Anthony Bourdain suicide one night, uh, and there was a part in the article that talked about the voice in his head that that hated him, that wasn't him, and I was and I was like, "You mean that's not me?" And I started crying because I was like. I know that voice and I've always thought that was me and to learn suddenly that that's not me, that that's just, wow. You know, anyway, there's a lot of things that drugs helps me, uh, do to love myself more, but, uh, you know, the good drugs. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then like just time, it's a very slow process. I get a little better every year at loving myself. Uh, having a kid, I wouldn't recommend it as like a project for you. Like don't have a kid <laughs> so that you love yourself, but like when you are ready to, uh, because it's a huge, it's a huge, I always felt like my dad's philosophy was like, 
uh, I brought you into this world so you should be grateful to me, you know? My philosophy with my son is like, dude, I'm really sorry I brought you into this world. So I, I, I'm gonna take care of you as best I can because you didn't ask to be born. I, I brought you here. So anyway, I think you should be ready to have a kid. But when you do, you will find a whole other side of love, a depth of love that you haven't known. And it really helps you love your inner child. When you, especially, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt that they look like you. <laughs> they have your blood, your cells inside of them. It really is helpful. Like, uh, there's like Mormon scripture about, or maybe it's also in the Bible too, but Mormons love to talk about like, uh, Elijah, right? So it's definitely in the Bible, uh, turning the hearts of the children to their fathers, right? And we talk, Mormons talk about it in terms of genealogy and stuff. But like, I think about that scripture still a lot because having a kid, made me think so much about my dad and it made me think so much about me as a kid and it made, anyway it it healed a lot of things just learning how to love a child and take care of him gives me so much more compassion for young Aaron like baby Aaron and being like it's not like age it's not wasn't age regression there maybe it was but what I was like I was imagining young Aaron I had to like yeah. visualize him and like hold him and stuff Make and like after having a child a, you know and after having a, a, a Ethan, that's my son's name, after having him and loving him so much, man, it, it, I felt such shame for the feelings that I had towards, uh, little Aaron, you know? And I'm like, you, I would never treat Ethan this way or allow anyone to treat him this way. Why am I treating myself this way? Why do I, you know, have such contempt for myself? So that helped a lot mm -hmm. of things as well. Yeah. Uh, so. I mean, we're getting to basically the heart of spirituality. It's who am I? Am I that crazy voice in my head? Am I the thing that's constantly chattering us at us? Or do I have a soul or am I of God or right? Like these are spiritual questions. Who am I really? I think, and, yeah, I don't know, but I don't think we're that voice because we're observing the voice, right? If we can observe the voice then we're not the voice. So, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, Okay, I feel like for future combos, we got to do this again because this yeah, was fun absolutely. as hell. Absolutely. Uh, we got a live thread. So I want to mm. talk to you about modern fatherhood. Yeah. I want to talk to you about all your experience. I talk so towards... much more about comedy too. I, yeah. Just to clarify, I do believe cancel culture is real and it's something that we as a society need to try and fix because like, you know, whatever. I just don't believe that it's affecting comedy at all. Mm. I don't mm -hmm. believe that it's hurting any comedian whatsoever. If anything, it's profitable. It's a marketable thing. And every comedian has to push to, a shtick to sell tickets. I get that. And there's a lot of them right now that are selling tickets on being the guy who says the things that no one wants you to say. You're not allowed to say this. And I think those guys are, you know lame and old yeah. and Ricky Gervais and stuff. Yeah. So like, yeah. but like I, uh, cancel culture is something that I do think about, you know, but like, it's just, well, those comics are full. Of we it. got, we got threads that are alive. Aaron, thank you for sitting down like this. This was so nice. Actually. Thank you for having Dude. me. I'm excited to come back again, man. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, uh look forward to your shows up in, up in Montana yeah. and Northwest fun. It was a delight. Flow state. Yeah. Uh -huh.